this morning, I wanted to point out the gold insert in your service folder. If you'd like to use that as we study God's Word together, please do so. Also, uh, feel free to take that home with you as there's a, uh, a follow-up Bible study on the backside that goes along with our sermon study. In 1878, so that's a long time ago, anyone alive? Um, yeah, over 130 years ago, context, a man named George Eastman planned a vacation to the Caribbean, and one of the main deals about his vacation was that he wanted to take pictures of everything he saw. So using the technology of that day and the things that are available at that time, what he found out was if he wanted to take pictures of the Caribbean in 1878, he'd need to bring along with him a large bulky camera, a tripod, a box of chemicals for quick developing, a darkroom tent to do the developing, and something that I don't even know what it is, but it was on the internet, so it's got to be true, a, uh, a wet plate machine or a wet plate apparatus. So he'd have to bring all of this stuff along with him to take the pictures that he was desiring, and so he just decided, you know what, it's not worth the hassle, he, and he canceled his trip. Starting the very next year, this then 24-year-old began inventing. And over the next 50 years, he began inventing and improving, inventing and improving, inventing and improving, improving, improving. A way for people like you and me to take pictures in a much easier way. And his inventions caught on, and the name of his company, he called, was Kodak. And for the next over 100 years, Kodak was the name in photography and picture-taking. In fact, in 1976, 90% of all the film sold in the world had the name Kodak on it. 85% of all the cameras in the entire world were made or manufactured by Kodak. And in 1995, not so long ago, the average selling price of stock of Kodak was about $58 for that year. You know what Kodak closed at on Friday? A share? <laughs> 22 cents about. In fact, some of you may not know this, but a lot of you do. Last January, Kodak filed Chapter 11 bankruptcy. How could such a primo American company fail like that? What happened? You know, I think what it is is everyone stopped taking pictures. No one takes pictures anymore. Yeah, right. There's more cameras and more pictures being taken now than at any point in the history of the world, isn't there? So what happened? You know what happened? And we could have a full study just on Kodak, but we won't. What happened is that Kodak became more attached to the method of photography than to their mission. They became more attached to the film aspect, to the method of the way that they would do photography than to the simple mission that George Eastman started 130 years ago was how can we make picture taking easier for people? And so in an era where everything went digital, and as someone told me after the service, Kodak had been on the cutting edge of this digital process, their executives decided that the method was more important than the mission. And last year when they filed bankruptcy, 
they were the best film photography company in the entire world. But no one cared. And film photography and Kodak became irrelevant. How many of you like having irrelevant attached to your name? Not a lot of, it's not a good adjective. It's not good in the business world. It's not good in the church world either. Now, when I make a comparison like Kodak to church, I know that antennas go up and this could be taken in the wrong way and so I think it's important to pause for a moment and to clearly explain what I'm talking about here. God is timeless. The message of Jesus, sin and grace, the forgiveness of sins, timeless. No matter how cultural winds change, God's direction for how to live your life clearly shared in the Bible, no matter what culture accepts, is timeless and will never change. And there was a timeless aspect to Kodak, wasn't there? That simple mission to make picture taking easier. But the problem wasn't their mission. The problem was putting methods higher on the same level as mission, and they became irrelevant. Could this ever happen in church world? Could the church in America ever become irrelevant? Well, I wonder if you know some of these statistics. Just recently, a statistic tells us that under 20% of Americans now go to church regularly. of the youth in our nation that go to church. So we're already excluding the youth that didn't get brought up in church, but the, just the ones that go to church, almost 80% of them, and young people, you do not need to add to this statistic. You can be part of the change. But almost 80% of church-going youth don't go to church when they go to college at that point in their life, and many of them fall away altogether. And guess what? There's a lot of blame to go around, right? There is. We can blame sin. We can blame culture. We can blame parents. And my question is, do we, the church, have any culpability in this? Could there be anything that the church could do better? Sometimes I think churches like Kodak, can become just as attached or even more attached to the method than to the mission. Mindful of this, as we read through the surveys last August of the congregation and tried to encompass what was being said about what makes Bethlehem different or what is valuable at Bethlehem, we ended up using this word relevant to describe what people were saying. And again, so that we don't get this misunderstood, I came up with a, a definition that is easy to remember and one that you'll probably hear a lot over the years. Relevant in church context is using what is timely to share what is timeless. Is being okay with using what is cultural, what is timeless, 
I mean timely, to share that which does not change, the timeless word and gospel of Jesus. Now, the reason why we have to articulate this and write it down, why can't we just know that it's true? Why does it have to be a value? You know why it is? Because the natural leanings of people is to move away from relevancy and we naturally move towards comfort, don't we? We naturally move away from change and naturally we lean towards that what we know, know even when sometimes culture might be changing. And this value of being relevant isn't just something that you know, we pulled out of thin air. It's actually something that Jesus modeled for us. And that's a perfect place to go, Jesus, to consider this relevancy aspect of our ministry, our church, our lives. So we're going to turn to uh, John chapter 4 in just a moment. It's a, a section where Jesus is, is coming into contact with a Samaritan woman. Um, and there's a little bit of backstory that's needed in order to really understand what's going on. So just uh, allow me to give you that for a moment. Uh, first of all, Jews, uh, that is descendants of Abraham, uh, and Jesus and the disciples were Jewish. Um, in general, Jews did not like Samaritans. In fact, that's probably too light of a way of saying that. They, they hated Samaritans. And, and there was some, uh, quote-unquote, understandable reasons for that, and there were some that were just pure sin. Um, the understandable reasons go back to the history of Samaritans. They had been a Jewish race as well, or they had been Jewish, full-blooded Jewish, but they, over time, intermarried with pagan nations that sort of inhabited the area where Samaria was. So over time, they not only became less Jewish, they also fell away from the true God. And in fact, Jews took this to such an extent and this is where the sinful part comes, that they treated Samaritans um, like outcasts. Uh, in fact, if I wanted to walk to that wall and Samaria was in the middle, a Jew would walk around Samaria to get to the wall rather than to dare put their toe into that pagan, heathen, despicable country. In our lesson, Jesus blows up tradition and he walks to Samaria and not only walks in there, you know, in and out, jumps in and out, no, he stays for a while in a town called Sychar. His disciples go get some food. Jesus stays by the well to rest. A woman comes up to him and Jesus being God, he can see right into people and he knows things about people that you and I wouldn't know, and he knew about this woman's past. He knew that this woman was a, a woman who had been married not once, not twice, not three times, not four times. She'd been married five times. And the man that she currently was living with wasn't her husband either. The Bible doesn't tell us why. She'd been married five times. But you try to come up some, with some reasons that doesn't leave this woman badly wounded and deeply hurt. Let's try some, uh, some reasons on for size. Let's say it was that they all died. 
Five men that she loved, five husbands all die. Five funerals of people that she loved. If that was the case, you have a woman carrying around a whole lot of grief. Let's say she was a bad judge of men, and she married five bad men who left her for one reason or another that were not her fault. If that were the case, you have this lady walking around carrying deep embarrassment and self-esteem issues. Could she find someone that would love her? The most likely reason, I believe, is that this woman was a philanderer. In our language, she slept around. The reason why I think that's most likely is because of what she was currently doing, that is, living with someone who wasn't her husband. And if that was the case, and that's conjecture too, that would have left her with a whole bunch of guilt and shame to deal with. We don't know what was going on, but here's what we know. The jar of water she was carrying wasn't the heaviest thing she was carrying around in her life. And with all that backstory, we turn to John chapter 4, verse 7. A Samaritan woman came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. <laughs> Again, Jesus, not following what would have normally been done, he not only talks to this Samaritan, but she's a Samaritan woman with such a public and embarrassing past. And not only does he talk to her, he actually asks her for a drink from her, her jar of water, he was willing to put his lips and mouth on a jar that Samaritans and a sinful Samaritan like this would put her lips on. And in that way, Jesus is kind of setting the table here. He's, he's, he's in essence telling her, you're not unworthy of me talking to you. You have value. You have worth. With that, we continue in verse 9. The Samaritan woman said to him, you're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews don't associate with Samaritans. So this woman is so surprised by the fact that a Jew would talk to her that she doesn't even answer the question about getting uh, Jesus a drink. Instead, she comes back with a, a question of her own. And then there's this back and forth that takes place for a few verses. I want to skip ahead to verse 13. Jesus says, Everyone who drinks... This water that you're bringing up from the well will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water that I give them or him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Isn't it amazing how relevant Jesus is here? They're drawing water. Jesus uses water. And he uses this comparison um, that I just want to simplify for you today. Um, how long will you live without water? Not very long, right? So water gives life. In the same way, Jesus had something to offer her, a message, forgiveness, gospel, that would give her life eternal. Now, the woman's still a little confused. I think you would be too. Water, living water, never need to drink again. I mean, what's going on? And so we continue. Verse 15, the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. And then Jesus does something. 
that at first blush would seem to be totally insensitive and downright mean. Jesus says something that if we don't stop to talk about it, if a friend of yours did this to you, you may not talk to them for a very long time or ever. Because Jesus goes right to her heart. Remember, Jesus knew her past. And listen to what Jesus says next. Go call your husband and come back. Whew. You talk about pulling a scab off a wound. You talk about not messing around, but being relevant to where that lady was and what she was carrying around. And you can just imagine that he keeps drawing water. Uh-oh. Quickly replies, verse 17, I have no husband. Maybe he'll change the subject. Jesus doesn't. You're right when you say you have no husband. This fact is you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. You know what Jesus is doing here? It's the same thing that happens to me when I'm reading my Bible and my daily devotion. And I read a section of scripture and I realize that the way I live is not anywhere close to what Jesus directs. It's the same thing that happens to you maybe when a pastor is God's representative is speaking to himself but also to you. And it's one of those moments where you're like, do they have cameras at our house? I mean, how do they know what we're dealing with or how we act? And he says something through the word that makes you squirm in your seat a little bit because it hits so close to home. It's Jesus sort of ripping at that scab and loving you enough to talk about that which is most relevant to your life right now. And do you know why he does that? Because we need to know that we're thirsty. The reason Jesus does this is to be sure, to make sure that the Samaritan woman realizes how thirsty she really is and what her thirst is really all about. Because, my friends, we daily, weekly need to be reminded of how thirsty and how needy we are so that then, as Jesus did, he can share with us, just like with her, <laughs> this living water through which we will never die but will live forever. The, the sweet, sweet water of the gospel that tells us that we're forgiven, that we're children of God, even though we might sometimes act not that way. Now, let's take a step back for a moment. How much of what we just read would have happened if Jesus was just as concerned with method as he was with mission? None of it would have happened. 
Jesus would have never gone to Samaria. He would have never talked with a Samaritan, much less a Samaritan woman, much less a Samaritan woman with the sin or just public past that this woman had. You see, the church at the time, the Jews, they would have been more concerned about this woman's race than her sin. They would have been more concerned about her lack of Jewishness than her lack of faith. The Jewish establishment, the religious leaders of the day, would have been um, more concerned about how to make her right with the church than how to make her right with God. And in fact, I think it is so, so ironic, because as soon as this woman begins to understand faith in the living water of Jesus, guess where her very next thought goes to? Hmm. So how is it that we should worship? What should the church look like? I'm serious. This is exactly what she says next. Verse 19. Sir, I can see that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. <laughs> we so quickly take a relationship with Jesus and right away go to the forms and the methods and how it's done instead of what it is. And what Jesus' answer is, is, in a nutshell, is this. It doesn't matter what mountain you worship on. Verse, next verse. 23, a time is coming and has now come when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit, with their hearts, and with truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. The truth is that God isn't worried about a place. He isn't worried about a form. He's not worried about a method. God's main concern are people and hearts and a relationship with his son. And in this account, in this visit with a Samaritan, we see Jesus using what is timely to share what is timeless. So how does the value of relevant, then, affect churches today. I think it affects our message. Think about Jesus again. He comes into contact with that Samaritan, and he could have talked about a lot of things. He could have spoke with her about how her forefathers screwed up and started marrying pagan nations. He could have spoke about how she's not following dietary laws. They could have spoken about the weather. You know, it's in a nice sunny day. But instead, he cuts to the truth of that which was most relevant to her life and that which she needed the most. For her, it was a discussion about sin and about grace. And so he talks about living water. Can I share with you something about our church? Um, at Bethlehem, we plan our sermon series a, a year out at a time. And when we do that, we don't just take darts and throw them at a dartboard or what do you think might sound good? We run our discussion, and it's not magical, and the Holy Spirit doesn't come down from heaven, but we run things through that very same grid of relevancy. What do God's people need to hear? What do I need to hear? 
What does our community need to hear? What things are we battling against? What things, relevant things, are we struggling with? What situations are we getting ourselves in? And then, when that's planned, we write our sermons with God's help and grace the same way. For instance, um, a lot of times, well, let me say it this way. The easiest part of writing a sermon, and it's still not easy, but it's the easiest, is explaining God's word. The hardest part, the time that takes the most, or the part that takes the most time, the part that I say the most prayers about is, Lord, help me to take your timeless truth and connect it to people's lives in a timely way. Lord, give me insight into what people are facing because your truth is the, your truth is the answer to all things. Help me to apply this to people's lives in a relevant way that will make a difference for their life and for their eternity. And to do that sort of thing on a pastor level, on a fusion teacher level, on a member level, you know what we need to do, church? We need to be students of our culture. We need to know what our culture is about and what people are facing. Um, let me give you an example of this. In our circles in Wells, when someone is sent to be a missionary in another country, let's say Africa or Brazil or Colombia or wherever, they don't just go there and start preaching and starting a church right away. Is God's word not as powerful in Africa as it is here or something? It has nothing to do with God's word. It's this very real understanding that a preacher of the word needs to relate and understand the people and the culture so as to not be a barrier of the word. It comes so easy with foreign missionaries. The philosophy, that is. I think we need to do the same thing right here. The same thing where we live. To be sure that we're not hunkered down with methods, but that we are daily studying our culture and realizing that we have a timeless message that everyone needs to hear, the message of Jesus, but how can we take that timeless message and how can we share it in forms and in methods and in ways that are timely, that address and interact with adults, that are able to relate and interact with kids, to be relevant to all people of all ages. And there is no checklist of here's how it has to be done. But my friends, as a church, being relevant means we need to ask the questions. And we need to be willing to change, not the mission, but the methods. Now, I'm going to empathize with you about something. And this has gotten worse for me as I've gotten older, as I'm sure it is for many of you as well, maybe. That change is hard. You know what's harder than change? Change at church. And there's good reason for that. 
Because the most dear thing to your heart and soul is your Lord and Savior, Jesus. And church is all about Jesus. And so change is hard. We've done this, my friends, but we need to continue to be aware of this every day. We need to daily look at our community, our church, our people, our families, because there is an entire world that needs the very same thing that a Samaritan woman needed 2,000 years ago at a well. Life-giving water. And so, with God's grace, help, direction, and patience, we value here being timely, that we might share that which is timeless, so that we might share life-giving water with a world that has thirst. that end, we'll close with prayer. And also in our prayer, 